Hello, and welcome to The Anti-Racist Economy with Kim Creighton. As the anti-racist economist, Kim Creighton is dedicated to building a future that is supremacy, coercion, discrimination, and exploitation free. In each episode, join Kim and myself, Erin Mills, as we discuss the intersection of current events, pop culture, and social change, ever exploring the critical dynamics of anti-racism and psychological safety in today's rapidly evolving workplace. Kim, we're here. We're doing it. <laughs> yes, it's 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 um I'm excited. <laughs> I, I'm one of those people who likes the unknown. So I'm ready to explore and see where this takes us in the few months and and whatever and see what we what we capture. As am I. And speaking of a few months, you have a very busy few months ahead. And so given that this is our inaugural podcast, I thought we could take a few minute, minutes to share with our listeners a little bit about the work you okay. and how you found how you found yourself today in uh, in profit without oppression and future is free. So please edify our audience. Well, profit without oppression is a um, economic theory that I'm working on. Uh, I'm, I'm in the process of finishing up my doctoral degree, um, business administration, and I'm focusing on technology entrepreneurship. And as I've been um, coaching, consulting, advising tech leaders, um, I recognize because of the theory that my um, <clears throat> that my research is couched in, which is um, learning organization, not organizational learning, but a learning organization, that um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this space. And a lot of the work that people who think they're being, you know, doing the right thing, the good thing, it's the reasons we fail so much, particularly if you look at DNI, if you look at hiring, if you look at retention, if you look at, like you said, welcoming and psychological safety, um, we're trying to build something in systems, institutions, and policies that were designed to exclude the majority. Um, and it's not possible. Um, you cannot grow healthy vegetables in toxic soil. And so, the profit water oppression is my understanding of when I decided no more new wine and no wineskins. Audre Lorde's quote, the master's tools would never dismantle the master's house. Um, I'm just tired. I just, I was like, there are, and what I saw is that there are a, a lot of people who want to do things differently. They just don't know how. And so that's what my work has been, particularly as an educator is stop doing that. This is why we're going to stop doing that. And this is what we're going to do instead. But with cause of scene, the stuff I was doing before, we all, it was like stuck in a loop. You got to stop doing that. This is why you're going to stop doing that. But we never got to what we're going to do instead. So this is what this work is about. It is about creating business models, creating, shifting personal perspectives and through the lens of supremacy-free, coercion-free, discrimination-free, and exploitation-free. Because there is nothing inherently wrong with capitalism. Capitalism is a theory. It is how we've been, it's been implemented around the world um, to exclude, to uh, oppress, to exploit. Um, there's nothing in the definition of capitalism that says that that's a necessity. And so I'm just like all these white folks, they got to decide, I'm deciding I wanna do something different. And so this is what the experiment is all about. And it's beginning with a book. So tell us a little bit about Profit Without Oppression, a blueprint to building an anti-racist organization. So yeah, um, Profit Without Oppression, a blueprint for building an anti-racist organization is the first in a series of books. Um, 
as I said, I am getting a doctorate degree in business administration. The reason, the only reason I went to back to graduate school was because I wasn't with all the information that's on the internet, it was not gaining me knowledge. And so I've had to go into so much debt just to get this knowledge that is that has always been the domain of people who don't look like me. Um, and so it's been passed down from the privileged and powerful for, for generation to generation. And folks like me have never been able to access it and scale it. And so that's what I want. That's what the book is. It is our opportunity for if you're not a mediocre, unremarkable white dude, uh, if you believe in or, or, or have thoughts of creating a business opportunity, because as we know, business is what drives our economy globally. And it's, it's the one thing that will ensure in most situations that there's generational wealth. So a lot of the stuff that politicians and stuff talk about, they, don't, they won't lead to generational wealth because it's still the same systems, institutions, and policies that are inside. So those, those systems, institutions, those policies are designed to extract wealth. So as soon, I mean, you look at it, somebody wins the lottery, uh, from an impoverished uh, background, you know, somebody who doesn't understand money, that money is gone. Not only is that money gone in 10 years, but they're in debt because that money is gone and because they've overspent. So just because you have money, just because you have access, which most of us don't, um, doesn't mean you know how to do it or how to move forward or how to, uh, the game. So this is what this book is about. It is a blueprint for, so the first section of the book is know thyself. We cannot do this work unless we have a serious commitment to self-reflection and our impact on the people around, on, on, on not only um, shareholders, because that's all that current capitalism focuses on, but I talk about stakeholders, people who work for you, people who partner with you, people who buy from you, people who are impacted by you, and then people who invest in you, because if those are taken care of, the investment would take care of itself. So I'm, 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 I've always been a person who, uh, for lack of a better word, I feel like Moses sometimes. I'm like, okay, I'm going on. I'm going to part the Red Sea. Now you're going to follow me or you're not. So that's what my, I've set my, my business up. My, 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 everything I do is so that I'm not beholden to people. I don't have to tamper down. I could be honest. And I'm showing people, I'm modeling how to move forward. So that's what the book is. The first in a series of how to move forward. And as an extension of that, the podcast is really meant to do that as well. And so you and I have been discussing a lot lately, just how the timing could not be more perfect for this book and for this podcast. And given the crazy dynamics at play right now between the impe you know, impending, if not already arrived recession, uh, you know, the great resignation, workplace shakeups and it's just, it couldn't be a better time to, to, to start to, you know, to start this work. I mean, it's not, certainly it's, you're not starting it, um, but to, for others to start their, to start well, their to profit with that. Provide alternatives so people yeah. can see, because it, what's been, what's happening is systems, institutions, and policies that are designed by, are designed to privilege um, a very small few. Um, wow. It is, it's, an, it's an equation. It's not just them. It's plus harming and excluding the many. Um, many people are starting to see that. And I point it out all the time and in ways that people don't think about because it's insidious. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is, you know, 
you're pointed out, but there's no direction, there's nowhere to go. And there's no hope, there's no where direction to go. If this is inevitable, if I have to be a racist, if there's nothing I can do to build an anti-racist practice, why am I doing the work? Because there are options. And so I'm, I'm sure there are other people out there, but I am creating options. I'm saying we don't have to keep relying on systems, institutions, and policy that are designed to privilege white folks and harm everybody else. Absolutely. And so you and I, when we tried to map out the narrative for how is this going to go, and I think it's going to evolve, we're still figuring it out, obviously, yes. folks. this is day one here, but <laughs> we talked about, you know, we want to root this in pop culture, we want to root this in current conversations, both in our own lives and mm -hmm. in the social sphere. And so we developed a concept called the trigger, which we're the going trigger. to <laughs> unveil in just a minute here. So tell our listeners a little bit about why we thought that would be the good anchor point for each of our podcasts. Well, first of all, um, it's, it's a good anchor point because what's happening right now triggers a lot of people, but we use the, that word has been bastardized. It's been um, appropriated. And so it's not, it doesn't have to be something traumatic. It can be, but it's just what happens that triggers the thoughts or what happens that triggers the action or what happens that came before this thing what was the trigger again the trigger what caused it and so um we need to unpack that and the, and the reason it flows with pop culture and social change because it happens every day every day i come across something in the system institution and policy that I can see, because I'm a systems thinker, I can see 10 steps down the line where most people are just like, oh, but that works right now. But that trigger today will have an impact months, years down the line, and people aren't thinking about that. So I want to, I like to bring up, because people think, I don't want people to think that profit without oppression is just about business. It's just, it's about how we view the world. I really want people to sh shift to how we view the world. And that's why the future is free is so important. It's such an important hashtag for me because the future is free of supremacy. It is supremacy free, coercion free, discrimination free and exploitation free. And so what are the triggers that highlight that things aren't supremacy free, coercion free, discrimination free and exploitation free? And there are plenty. <laughs> there are, and we have, we've selected one today that we think is gonna jumpstart the conversation. And yes. so, I will go ahead, if you don't mind, um, Kim and I chatted about, you and I chatted about, we wanted to center on exploring managing whiteness in relationships with black folks. And so I'm gonna read a tweet uh, that I think teased us up nicely for this conversation. I'm gonna let you, uh, invite you to unpack that for okay. us today. So, so here we are. All right, and this is from last week, July 8th. So. I'm often asked by black folks when they learn about the work I do, if I have white friends and what they never expect is that my answer then forces them to reevaluate their own white relationships. Answer. And if this is your answer mm -hmm. back to your, to your, to black folks who ask you this question, not many, not many white friends because it requires white folks to acknowledge their role through ignorance or willfulness in maintaining systems, institutions, and policies of white supremacy and anti-Blackness, and to commit to a consistent demonstrated anti-racist practice, which prioritizes me. 
having meaningful relationships with white folks as a black woman is a lot of work. It requires me to constantly challenge bias and prejudices that they're rarely aware of. And because of this ignorance, they will at some point prioritize whiteness over me and cause harm. This isn't about whether they're a good white person because there's nothing good or redeeming in whiteness as a construct because systems, institutions, and policies ensure that white folks always benefit in ways that are to my detriment. So yes, I have white friends with very specific conditions and boundaries. White folks being in relationships with me benefit from learning strategies to distance themselves from the pathology of whiteness by developing a practice to regain the humanity that they've been stripped of. Damn, I'm good. That's <laughs> <laughs> no argument here. Okay. Woo. So a lot to unpack, a lot okay. to talk about, you know, ultimately, I mean, let's start at the beginning. How often are you, I mean, how often does this question come up? First of all, because um, it, it comes up, let me tell you when I, when I first started doing this work, when I first started speaking out, there were black folks who literally would call me or text me or DM me, hey, I love what you're saying, are you okay? Because they knew, the, the, are you, do you have safety? Do you have security? They were, because they know what it means to be a black person, particularly a black woman speaking out about these things. And um, so that's how it started. And that was before I even got into Cause a Scene, which was my old um, persona, <laughs> where I was just, you know, fucking shit up. <laughs> <laughs> if you were doing it, I was calling it out. Um, just because people, I got sick of people like, oh, I don't know. So I was like, okay, let me call it out for you so you can see it. Right. And so, um, I, and I tell people in my talks, I'm like, I have five white friends and they laugh. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not joking. Um, and they rotate out because, um, they, it's, it's a lot of work dealing with white, to manage white relationships um, as a black woman. Um, and I'm gonna tell you white folks who always claim, oh, I have black friends. They are, I, 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 there are no absolutes, but I can say 99.999% of, right, of your relationship with black people are not as honest as, with you as you think they are. Because what it requires is, um, I'll just use me as an example. If I didn't have the boundaries and, 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 and um, expectations I have with the white people in my life who understand who, I can't be relationship with you if you don't understand, first of all, that I need to be the priority because you will harm me at some point. You will do something, you will say something you will that you are not aware of that will harm me. And I, because of what the work I do, I'm gonna check you on it. I'm gonna say, hey, that was in, da, da, da. The average black person will not do that. They're just gonna close, shut down. And so now your relationship is about, they don't, now they're making calculations. Can I talk to them about this? Is it safe for me to talk to them about this? Do they really want to know my full perspective? I don't really think they can handle my full perspective because what usually happens when black people really start talking about what our lives are like, white people go into, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, oh, I'm not, that. they center themselves. It becomes about them. So now I'm not talking about my story. Now I'm having to manage your feelings and how you feel about the shit that happened to me. That takes a lot. And so I don't have those kind of relationships because I set really hard boundaries. It's not, so my relationships aren't reciprocal in the fact that we share um, 
like you and I, I think you're, we're friendly. We're not friends. I don't know anything about your personal life because I don't care. That's not my, uh, you're here for specific reasons. I'm here. I'm teaching you. You're learning from me. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in that relationship, we have a reciprocal relationship where you are doing this work to ensure that my voice and my message gets out there. So yeah. it's, it's very, it's very transactional in a way, but it's, it's the safest route until somebody has been able to prove mm-hmm. that they have the ability to subordinate whiteness in, in service to me or my community or my, or my lived experience. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it's also proving it is one thing, but it's also never, it never ends. Like the work is never done. And I think that's why you probably said that that five rotates in and out because there's an ongoing commitment. I mean, just today you graciously corrected me. We were typing up notes to get ready for the podcast. And I was jotting down that we wanted to talk about, you know, if you think you have a black friend and I was, I was using the word black, black, and I wasn't capitalizing it. And you called me out and then I did it again. And you said, you made an error you know, oh, you made an error again. I was jotting down notes. And of course, and I still find myself to, I, immediately, the instinct is to center oneself in my head. I thought, oh gosh, but I'm just typing so quickly. I didn't mean anything by it, but that's the problem. Get, yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't aid in the conversation. It doesn't stop the harm that's already done. It doesn't, you know, and, 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 and so I'm grateful for these opportunities when, you know, and you've helped me in other ways, guys, I say, Hey guys, Hey guys, no folks, let's, let's take gender out of it. Like, like, you know, there's, but, but that work, it, it, let's be honest, it's exhausting. Exactly. It's exhausting. it's exhausting. So to have more, so for me, let me explain why I fail have very few white friends. This, this is work for me. I am educating the oppressor while also processing my own oppression. I cannot allow many people of whiteness to be in that space because I have to protect me. Y'all don't know how to protect me. So I have to be very clear about what my expectations are. So certain things that um, there's a white guy who who cares about me greatly, but there's certain things that he talks about. I'm like, "Mm -mm, you got to go somewhere else to get that because I'm not here to support that. I can't do that because those are your white. Take it to somebody else. Our, our relationship has very clear boundaries. And it becomes this thing of you either agree or you don't. And I'm okay with that because I'm not, what am I losing by saying somebody who has the potential to harm me and not know it, then okay, bye. That's, an, that's, a, that's a harm, something that's potentially harm for me that I don't have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Because at some point, White people will do something like me. Now use this as an example. I am a, a, would love to be a co-conspirator with trans people, particularly black trans women. And I fuck up every time. And it's because that's not my lived experience. So I say something I've heard on news and they're like, no, Kim, that's not right. Da, da, da. And so I stop, I don't say, well, I even, no, it's, it's immediately, I am, I apologize. First of all, let me make sure I understand what I did incorrect, which them to having to tell me that is, is a burden on them. And then I have to make a commitment never to do that again. So although you were typing fast, you had not made the commitment yet never to do it again. Because yeah. let me explain why it's important, why we capitalize. And even uh, AP um, Style Guide has changed how they capitalize we capitalize B when we're talking about black people. We are not a color. We are a community, but we don't c- c- capitalize white because that is not community. 
even white people, black people don't sit back and say, I'm black from that, we, we're black. White people get in whiteness, oh, I'm Italian, I'm Irish. No, 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 to us, you're white. So mm -hmm. there is no collective community around whiteness that there is about blackness. Somebody from black in Mississippi has the same colloquial shit that some black person in New York. Uh, we, 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 we know the same language, we know the same little shortcuts. It is a culture. It's not just a color. So that's why we capitalize, when we're speaking about black people, we capitalize that. We're talking about the color black, it is not capitalized. We do not capitalize white because that is not a culture. What advice would you give to white folks who have the relationships with black folks and they value those relationships very much, but hearing this today, they might say, wow, like, how do I okay, proceed? Okay, the first or, thing you do not do, let me stop you. First yeah, thing you do not yeah. do, which you're gonna do, is go ask that black friend, someone said this, and I wanna, first of all, you're gonna, your first instinct is to have your black friend say I'm wrong. That's gonna be the first thing, cause that makes you feel good. So you are gonna go to them and say, Kim said this thing, I know I'm not this thing, please confirm that I'm not that thing. You're centering yourself and you're not managing your own damn uh, feelings and your feelings are yours to manage and not us. That's another thing, black women particularly, our role has always been in service to other people. When we act in service to ourselves, we're selfish, we're angry, we're all these things. But you have no problem with us being in service to anybody else being of service to you. So this is not something you unpack with your black friends. You go to your white friends and say, hey, I've heard this thing and I wanna unpack this. I wanna understand this better. Um, and you talk to people who are, again, again, there's a baseline. Yep. There's one thing that I know as I'm moving out and I'm doing, I'm not debating this with people. There is all white people are racist by design and can't be trusted by default without a consistent demonstrated uh, anti-racist practice. And why that is, because white people don't even have to be in the space for systems, institutions, and policies that benefit them. They, it, they just, they don't even have to show up. They don't, bottom line is, if there's an opportunity between me and a white dude, me and a white woman, all energy goes to the whiteness. So you don't have to be, this is why there's no good white people. There are people who want to develop a consistent, demonstrated anti-racist practice. So yes, you don't go to your friend and, and, and want and, and, and seek their approval or, because again, they're not telling you the truth. Right, and you're doing the exact thing that you're, you're trying exactly. to Exactly, to you're disprove. doing the exact like, same thing. You're doing thing. it, <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. So I would say find a group of white folks who really believe in developing a consistent demonstrated because i don't give a damn about your words demonstrated practice and you start a group and y'all start working together what became i came up with came across this situation this thing happened let's talk it out now if you have black friends who are willing to do then after you've done your own work say hey i was talking to some some i heard this thing from kim and i went and unpacked it with some folks and i wanted to tell you this is what i learned so you're not going to them for them to validate or to say you're a good person. This is what I learned. I'm sure this has shown up in my relationship with you and I'm gonna be more conscious about not doing it in the future. That's all. They, you don't, they don't need your, you don't need their approval. They don't, need to, they don't need to be, this is not a part of their conversation. This is about your development. Right. So all you wanna say is, you know what? 
I want to show up for you as a better person. I want to show up for you where I prioritize you and not my whiteness. I want to show up with you in a way that you feel welcome and psychologically safe to share the world with me. Because I'm going to tell you, white folks, y'all, when, when we meet y'all, y'all tell us every damn thing about y'all lives. Y'all just pour. That is tiring. So that's how y'all, why y'all think we're in a relationship with each other. Because we know everything about y'all. But y'all don't know shit about us. Because we, we y'all don't make space to know shit about us. And this is another reason why I have problems when people bring white folks to black events without telling the black folks that they coming. Because we could be playing cards, we could be drinking. Soon as a white person shows up, everybody starts whispering. Everybody's behavior changes. Everybody except for me, because I get up and leave, because I'm not toning, I'm not toning down for them. I'm not trying to make because we have been taught, black people in the US specifically that we need to cater to your feelings. So we now talk about, uh, hey, sweetheart, you want something to eat? Everybody else getting their goddamn plate. Why you need something special? Get your ass up and get your plate. And so it becomes about all the fun that's happening. Now it's like, okay, we can't be, we got it. Because again, white people get to be individuals and we get to be groups. So we gotta, we gotta represent the whole group of white people around. So our whole behavior changes. And I don't, I don't think some folks aren't even white folks aren't even aware that of code switching and and like do you want to help define that and just well, well code switching is just that is is yeah. we change our vernacular our way of being our hair um, straight hair all, all of that stuff is code switching it is what assimilation was this is why I believe that um, desegregation did so much harm to the black community yes it needed to be proven we needed to experiment we needed to have desegregations just so we could prove. Because if we weren't for segregation and it's absolute failure, I wouldn't be able to say, you know what? It's not the people. Because what whiteness says, black people are wrong. It's us, and not which makes us not question systems, institutions, and policies. But I could pull back and say, no, 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 no. This is not me. This is happening, and and I can tell you, the internet has helped it because I can. Oh, that's happening to black folks in Australia too. And black folks in Sweden too, and but I mean, so you're like, oh, white supremacy and anti-blackness is everywhere. That is a system, institution, and policy. It is, and and I hope that if folks start to realize that that the systemic nature of it, and you're talking about whiteness, this is yes. not an individual attack on anyone. This is this is a construct. This is this is a lived experience of a large population of folks who are just inherently now subscribed to these things that were designed around this right and, and we're hearing I, it in our politics now yeah. oh they're coming after the white race and oh they're doing that no mm -mm. y'all what, what what happened was white supremacy's only function is chaos and destruction so now the parasite is eating its host because there's once you get that ball rolling you can't control how it's landing. And so now it's impacting black, uh, white people in ways that they never, never intended to. But now the parasite is eating its host. Hell, I look at Elon Musk and, and Trump going after each other. That shit's funny as hell to me. They were just in everybody. They were just the bros, you know. And now, ee, two very <laughs> people who are old enough to know better acting like petulant children. Two very privileged men. Elon Musk is the world's richest man, and he still has to be a Twitter troll. Think about how much, how much you lack that you need that kind of attention, and you're the world's richest person. Trump's the same way. 
But I don't hate either one of them because what it do, I, I love that they're doing this because what it does is every time they do this, it highlights for you white folks that I'm right and that you have work to do. Because without them, you question everything. But what if, but what if that, but, and it's always some outlier ex, um, situation y'all want to hang up. No, mm -mm, it's all, it's all. Yeah, when you see that sort of like privilege on privilege display. I mean, exactly. And you're like, still not happy. You still can't find peace. <laughs> still, still can't find peace. You're at the helm of the world, essentially, the helm of the economy. And that's what we're here. That's, you know, that's, and that's why we chose like the, the anti-racist economy for this podcast, because again, the economy in the broader sense of, of how all these aspects come together. Um, yes. It's not just kind it's just not just powering the financial aspects of, of, of the economy, but, but the social ones. Um, well, it's, 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 it's how it, uh, and let's dig into that. It's because yeah. the social aspect, the individual aspects are what allows people to benefit or, or leverage those systems, institutions, and policies. So, your beliefs about these things. And this is, this is what white folks don't get. You may say you have black friends that you love, but in your mind somewhere, because this is what you've all been taught. And, uh, and again, so have I. So I say everybody, every individual has their own internalized white supremacy and anti-blackness to deal with. Yeah. White people fundamentally have been taught that they're better than us, that they are better than black people. Black people have been taught the same thing. So that's why we straighten our hair. We change how we talk when we go into white space because all the spaces are white. So it's white spaces. So we try to go and that was what assimilation is. Like a knowledge economy requires accommodation, not assimilation. And that's where people are messing up. And this is why this book is important because it is not about, because this is how people have been doing diversity and equity and inclusion this point where they're like, oh, we're bringing them in, but they keep leaving because you're not changing everything. You're expecting them to assimilate. That is not how, a that worked when you had an indigenous um, um, uh, um, industrial economy where somebody sat on an assembly line and they made a widget and their widget had to look like everybody else. Right. You're hiring people for their knowledge. You need welcoming the psychological safety for me to tell you what I've learned in my position that business leaders can now leverage throughout the company and scale. If I don't feel safe, I'm gonna keep that to myself. I'm gonna tell you what black women do all the time. We watch it burn down and we get our bags and we leave and we go to the next thing. With the knowledge, we know your HR, we know your pro, um, promotions, we know how your code base, we know all of that. We didn't got to meet everybody. And so when Sabrina leaves, two weeks, two months later, everybody's like, what happened? Well, Sabrina left. She had all, all the knowledge. She had all the relationships. She understood how to connect with people because that's what black women do. That's what, that's what our all job has always been to take care of other people. So that's our superhero. That's our super, uh, superpower, right? And also black women are the kryptonite to white supremacy. And that's why they come at us so hard because with the systems, institutions and policies that have just been in this country since we were brought here as slaves and we're still not destroyed, we should be gone by now. So when a black woman shows up in your space, know that she's 10 times better than you. That's why I say white people are not my peers. It's not, it's not personal, it's not an attack. You have been groomed to be mediocre and unremarkable. Your, your, what you consider excellence is nowhere near our excellence. We can't get away with that. Right. We have to take your excellence and do it 10 times. So that's, again, going back to systems, institutions, and politics. If I come in your company, you think you got a great DNI program, 
But I see Charlie over there doing absolutely nothing, but I'm supposed to do this and do that. And oh no, I see inequity. I may not feel safe enough to say anything, but I'm taking notes and black women document the hell out of everything and I'm getting up and leaving. So we have a lot to, to bring it all back. We have a lot to discuss in this, in this podcast um, as it relates to anti-racist economy and how we move forward to a supremacy-free, coercion-free, discrimination-free, and exploitation-free future for ourselves and our future generations. Because we can't continue to do this. Again, white supremacy's only function is chaos and destruction. There is no getting better. You cannot improve. It is not designed for that. No, so we I mean, have and it, to create alternatives. Yeah, and it's playing out on the world stage. Yes, in the, in exactly. the grandest form, in the grandest form right now, really. Yep. You see it in you see it in the UK, you see it in India, you see it in uh, in China, you see it everywhere. You see it in Russia, you see it everywhere where these these authoritarian, libertarian uh, perspectives. You can be apolitical when everybody in the room with with you has the same has the same belief. That's not apolitical. It just means that it's a homogene, homogeneous. So there's no need to talk about politics because we all agree on the same thing. It's how do you keep a safe, excuse me, maintain safety and psychological um, welcoming and psychological safety when you have a room full of people from diverging lived experiences, right. and you're trying to create community with that. That's Absolutely. the beauty, but that's the struggle. What is the struggle? And the struggle is also to find to find joy in in yes. in all of this and to let joy continue uh, to be a part of of your life when the work that you do is so heavy. Uh, but you have uh, we I'm trying to remember this phrase came up when one of our work sessions and you said, "Can a bitch be joyful? Like, damn. <laughs> yeah, we were having a conversation and someone came in and we were laughing and they were like, why are y'all laughing? And the way they said it was sounding very much disdainful. And I was like, why can't a bitch just be joyful? You know, why does why do these conversations have to be, because these are, I won't continue, this work will not be finished with me. It is generational work. Yep. I refuse to be miserable as I do this work. <laughs> because I'm not a miserable person. I'm a joyful, silly gregarious, loud, funny person. And that's what I'm taking with this work. And it allows me because I now know that I have, just like they, the folks got to, and people need to um, um, read the Powell memo, the P-O-W-E-L-L Powell memorandum from 1972, I think it is. You read that, you'll understand how all, what we're seeing now was a strategy. So if they got to create a strategy, Oh my God, we get to create this creative strategy. And that is what empowers me. That is what brings me joy. That is why I'm optimistic. To be a black woman doing this work, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. And something else to be excited about is what's going on tomorrow. Ah! Tomorrow is the book pre-lunch. I am so freaking excited. I am so um July 15th is when the pre-sale happens for the book, when people can start um, ordering the book. And if you order the book, um, the link is being my link tree that's in my bios. I will be signing copies. 
and the book will come out in fall. So yeah, I'm so excited about this. I'm so excited to have, to finally have the things that I've been talking about to people uh, from in my head to, to be out in the real world. Ah, so exciting. Oh, that's great. So that, I think this is it. I think we've done it. We've done it. I'm looking at the clock and we've met our timing benchmarks and Thank, we want to thank everyone so much for tuning in to the first episode of The Anti-Racist Economy with Kim Creighton. I'm Erin Mills signing off. And I'm Kim Creighton. My only question for you is, will you join us in this work? Or will you join the movement to have a supremacy-free, coercion-free, exploitation-free, and discrimination-free future? <laughs>